This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have an interesting talk. I am with Dr. Hussein Gandhi. He is a primary care physician in England. They're going through this Brexit issue right now, so he's in England. And I'm familiar with healthcare in Canada and the U.S. as my family live in Canada, but I practice in the U.S. So Dr. Gandhi, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. So can you tell me generally how does healthcare work in, in England? How do primary care doctors work? How do specialists work? Access to care. My perception is that there's a private system and a public system. And again, I'm the first to say, I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not going to say I understand healthcare. I'm sure I'm going to misspeak in this episode. So if anyone catches any mistakes I make, please let me know and I will correct them. Yeah, sure. No problem. And, and I guess just to point out that the reason why I feel I can talk a little bit about it, I'm a, a GP, um, so short for general practitioner, which I guess is, is the equivalent to a family physician, I think, you know, in, in what they'd have in the States and uh, and stuff. And effectively, we are the first point of contact for many patients in, because we pretty much sit in primary care. The UK health system is delivered predominantly by an arm called the National Health Service, the NHS, which is actually one of the largest employers in the world. I think it's only beaten by Walmart, if I remember rightly. And it basically is a system that's funded by taxation, taxes that I pay and that many of my countrymen will, will pay, effectively goes to pay for the NHS. And the current budget it has is, is somewhere around £120 billion sterling. And then there's obviously some other pots of money that goes towards contributing to it and stuff. And that's basically how it's funded. There is private healthcare in England, um, so there are options for accessing private healthcare, either direct through providers or via other kind of routes, such as um, the newer models like telemedicine and, and that kind of thing. But that's not a really a common practice in, in England. Um, majority of people will use the NHS system. And when I mean majority, we're probably talking about 95% of the population, so quite significant numbers. Um the first portal contact, as I said, is your primary care physician, so predominantly the GP, and that's been the case for many years. And so whatever healthcare issue you may have, you'll go to your registered practice, which is based on a geographical area, and then they will deal with what other health issues you may have. Um, if you need the support of a specialist, then your GP would refer you onwards to a specialist, normally one of the local hospitals, and then you'd be seen at some point in the future pending certain restrictions and guidelines and that kind of stuff. And we can talk about a little bit more about that in a bit. Obviously, if you have an acute health issue, so you had an emergency, you know, an accident and severe infections, you know, that kind of stuff, then you may go to either an urgent care centre or so the A&E department, emergency departments, and that's provided up by the hospitals again um, on the NHS system. So free at the point of access, and then you'd be treated, managed, and hopefully discharged healthy and happy back to home. So yeah, that, that's the kind of basic patient journey. So to get into some specifics, so I'll make my comments on the US and Canadian system. So if how hard is it for someone to get a family practice or GP or physician to take care of them? 
it's not difficult at all. Simply, you just have to go to your nearby practice and they all have various geographical areas based either on the population density or you know existing kind of practice boundaries. And then you simply just fill in a form and you're registered with the GP, no matter where you come from. So um, in terms of primary care access, there is no restriction whatsoever. Secondary care, so access to hospital specialists, that is slightly different. And particularly if you're a UK resident, not an England resident, then you may end up having charges applied to you on that basis for secondary care. And that's based on particular requirements like how long you've been in the country and that kind of stuff. So you're touching on an interesting topic. So then if, let's say someone's living in England, they're an English Mm -hmm. citizen, and they go to their family, is family practice doctor the correct term? General practitioner. General practitioner. Then are they getting a bill? No. Um, there's no charge whatsoever to be registered with a practice for healthcare. Um, there is no charge whatsoever. The only common charges that people may end up having to pay. Um, so particular groups of populations may have to pay for prescriptions and that's typically the working well. So if, for example, you're a child um, up to the age of 16 or you're up to 18 in full-time education, you won't pay for prescriptions. If you're over 65, I think it is, then you won't pay for prescriptions. If you're unemployed and in in receipt of certain benefits, um, then you won't pay for prescriptions. Pretty much everything else is free, though. So this is an interesting topic for anyone in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Because if they see their doctor or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant, Mm -hmm. they're getting a bill. Sometimes a very large bill for sometimes a very quick visit. Yeah, no, I've seen some of the bills that on social media that seem to crop up and whether they're obviously true or not, I don't know. But uh, one I remember is um, a patient that ended up going to give birth, I think it was, very, what sounded like a fairly simple birthing process. And that was something like $80,000 in costs in total. Now, whether that was the true cost or not, I don't know. But yeah, in the UK, you wouldn't pay a penny. Oh, so that also extends to obstetrics and gynecology here. So the whole... Um, so pretty much the entire aspect of healthcare, aside from optical care, so opticians and that kind of stuff, you would have to pay for things like your frames um, or your lenses and sometimes your sight tests. Um, dental care is not really covered, so there are charges applicable to dental care. But yeah, pretty much everything is covered with some restrictions, like, like I said, opticians, dental, cosmetic care, that's not covered. Because I did another podcast with a nurse practitioner I work with. Her name's Nicole Wolfgram, and she gave birth to quads, and it was a very mm-hmm. rough pregnancy. And yeah. she actually went through a medical bankruptcy because of that. So she had the trauma of the pregnancy and the complications associated with it. And mm-hmm. then she also discussed, to a limited extent, just the financial hardship of the whole process. So she, mm-hmm. she's got four kids at home, their special needs, and then all this financial burden. So from what you're telling me, people aren't declaring medical bankruptcy in England. As far as I'm aware, no one has ever needed to declare medical bankruptcy because of charges related to healthcare in England or the UK. That's a very large statement because based on my understanding, Mm -hmm. a lot of people will declare medical bankruptcy in the US. What I've also seen very frequently is they will have GoFundMe pages. There was a a case of a hospital system that Mm -hmm. a patient needed, I think it was a heart transplant or a lung transplant. And the hospital actually sent a letter to the patient saying, well, we can't do the transplant because of your insufficient funds. So we suggest you start a GoFundMe page. Sure. And we do actually have that happen sometimes in the UK. So there are occasions where certain treatments may not be funded by the NHS system. The NHS effectively aims to run on what's called cost-effective care. And one of the main organisations that supports that is a group called NICE, 
So the National Institute for Cost Effectiveness, Clinical Effectiveness, sorry. And they are an organization that look at all the variety of treatments and managements and, you know, services and that kind of stuff and effectively evaluate how effective that would be as part of the healthcare system, both in terms of outcomes, clinical outcomes for patient benefit, but also balancing that with cost. And as a result of that, if they don't recommend a treatment for whatever reason that may be, then it may be that that particular geographical area won't provide that particular kind of treatment and I would love to think of an example but I've heard of things like ion therapies and that kind of stuff so, so like you said particularly more complex stuff like um, pediatric oncology that kind of thing um, rare genetic disorders those kind of things a lot of those kind of more experimental treatments and that kind of stuff may not be available to people in the UK and therefore there are examples where people have similarly gone down the route of like crowdfunding to pay for those kind of treatments or to have those specialists flown in from abroad to offer those treatments and stuff for people. So the perception that I have based on other conversations with people from England was is that there isn't a lot of, some would call it feudal care, where you have someone in an ICU mm-hmm. and most of the expense tends to come towards the end of life where you have mm-hmm. someone in an ICU, kidneys are failing, they're clearly yeah. going to die in the next week or two, mm-hmm. but hundreds of thousand dollars are poured into really keeping this person alive for another month or two or even a mm-hmm. week or two, mm-hmm. or a day or two, where clearly they're not going to get better. Yeah. Whereas that seems to not happen in the UK. I think it can do. Um, it's not to say that people aren't offered care. So I think it's that balance between trying to understand the impact on the person, impact on the patient, and the medical advice. It's always balanced with patient wants and needs to a degree. So the example you gave of somebody being significantly well on an ICU, um, they may end up being on there for longer than they potentially may need and that might be part in due to trying to support the either the patient or the patient relatives to accept the situation so it wouldn't be a case where they would just be kicked out kind of thing but clearly if there, if there was no medical benefit the doctors normally speak to the family and say look we're not sure what we can achieve and do we need to consider the other options in terms of how we make someone comfortable give them dignity and that kind of stuff and, and take it from that perspective which is, I think it's probably an interesting thing because it's one of the things I think many people in the UK and England take for granted potentially that because you're not having to directly pay for the cost of the healthcare, you sometimes don't appreciate what you have. Makes sense? It does. I think if you're only used to your system, it's very easy to be mm-hmm. critical of your system and think every other system in the world is better. The grass always seems sure. to be better on the other side. Canada seems to have a very similar system to the UK where no one's declaring medical bankruptcy as far as I know, but access to even primary care, sometimes limited. You can get a primary care physician, but if you want to switch primary care physicians, that might be difficult. And access to specialty care Mm -hmm. is very difficult. I can speak to the pain world where I tried recommending someone to a physician at the University of Toronto and the wait list was a year. Whereas in the States, in my field, I could see someone in a week or two if they needed to get in very quickly. Sure. And whilst I don't think the access issues we have are to the same breadth of issues that they may have in Canada, some of those examples are actually quite appropriate to what we deal with so obviously because um there is no direct payment in a sense and it's all state funded um the waiting times that people may have to experience may be longer than what people would want so i can give you some examples where i work um so it's an inner city area of nottingham in the middle of kind of england and stuff so fairly deprived area um lots of complex health needs for people we're fortunate that we have a self-referral service for physiotherapy for patients so if you injure yourself or if you need some rehabilitation and stuff and um, you don't even need to technically come and see me for that particularly you can actually refer yourself into the system and that's one of the measures to try and 
reduce the workload on the GP system itself because we actually have huge issues with workload demand balance and stuff. But with that, although it's free, and although you don't need specifically to come and see me to get the referral, the wait time for that is anywhere between, well, fluctuates, but it can be up to about six weeks before you have your first contact appointment, which if you've just sprained your ankle, waiting potentially six weeks, chances are it'll actually probably get either better before then or get to the significant stage where the rehabilitation process is going to be a lot more complex. And what about access to specialty care? So so access to specialty care is all via the GP. Your GP has to refer you, otherwise you don't get a referral. And I think that's, again, another challenge for some groups of patients to accept. So um, England's a very multicultural country, particularly from the European perspective, and various different health systems don't have the same models. An example would be the Polish healthcare system, where if you need to see a specialist, your GP refers to you, but he just refers you. There's not really much gatekeeping or triage or anything involved in that kind of stuff. And I guess from my understanding of the American system, um, if you see a specialist, you just go direct to the specialist. You don't need to see a family physician specifically to get them to do that for you. Whereas in the UK, the GPs are effectively the gatekeepers for the NHS. So every specialist referral that you may need has to come via your GP unless you go privately. And even then, actually, you still need a letter from your GP to be seen privately. So therefore, that can cause a difference in the way that people use the system. But it also does mean that it's a very cost-effective system because GPs, as a result of that, then are very broadly skilled and manage majority of the workload in the healthcare system. So there's lots of figures around, but the most commonly banded one is that um, general practitioners do 90% of the workload in the NHS for less than 10% of the actual budget. So my specialty is pain management and there's a procedure I do. It's called uh, geniculate radiofrequency ablation where these needles go in and they can put the nerves that are causing pain in the knee to sleep. So if someone wants Mm -hmm. to delay, say, knee surgery or they have pain after knee surgery, it's a very Mm -hmm. minimally invasive relatively low risk procedure and it it spares a lot of medications. Now, I've had people go to their GP or their family practice doctor and the family practice doctor, a particular family practice doctor said, I've never heard of that procedure. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about it, so I can't recommend it. But then that same patient saw several other patients of mine like in the hallway or wherever and ended up having it and doing really well. But Mm -hmm. what would the recourse be for someone who sees a family practice doctor or GP and the family practice doctor says, well, I don't don't really know about that, so I'm not going to refer you. So it's more protocol driven, I guess, in some ways. So if it was something that I couldn't do myself, I would normally then be considering, do I need to refer this patient onwards for that kind of service? If I know that we have access to that service, to be honest, I'd probably normally refer the patient if it was appropriate to do so. So I guess you mentioned um, pain management treatment. I didn't quite catch the whole wording. I actually don't know what that procedure is either. So It's okay. Um, like uh, yeah. It's a newer procedure and most people don't. It's yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing it's a form of, like you said, a nerve block and yep. uh, similar ones that we may have. So obviously injecting local anesthetic into nerve roots and that kind of stuff to try and... So the way it works is these special needles go in and they actually heat up and coagulate the nerves that are causing pain. Okay, so fair you, enough. They still have a lot of sensation to the knee. It just it blocks the nerves that are actually causing the pain and mediating. Okay. So if I was using the example that I would have, if we had a patient with chronic low back pain, traditionally we'd see them at the outset of the injury and try and manage that and obviously categorize whether that's a significant issue where they potentially may need an admission. So if we're worried about the nerves in the spine causing compression and that kind of thing and risk to movement or bowel bladder control, then obviously they go straight to the emergency department. And if they weren't, then we'd probably focus more in terms of pain management and rehabilitation. 
the concept of scanning is not something that's typically done acutely for that kind of thing. So in actual fact, the guidelines and criteria for me to refer, for example, an MRI scan of the spine, normally patients would have to have had that pain for at least six weeks before I can refer a patient because basically the criteria don't allow me to. And that's before I can actually even do the referral. That doesn't necessarily mean then they get the scan at six weeks. And obviously then if you're trying to categorize what kind of injury specifically they're dealing with it the majority of it is based on history examination findings rather than investigations and stuff and then as a result of that if they needed onward treatment i would then refer them into the queue what's an interesting thing that happens in the u.s is because of malpractice so there was a case where speaking of back pain i believe it was in california that there was a patient there was a younger patient had back pain mm-hmm. and by protocol my only familiarity with the case is what i read about in news reports but this patient had back pain and went to the er several times and by protocol they did not get an mri turns out that the patient had cancer of the spine Mm -hmm. and whether the mri would have made a difference likely no but Mm -hmm. because they didn't get the mri they settled i think for millions of dollars because Mm -hmm. the er physician did not order this mri Mm -hmm. where clearly it was well within the protocol and the guidelines that's not someone you would order an mri in but because of this medical legal issue Mm -hmm. i I would say mostly in the u.s a lot of tests are done for medical legal reasons how does malpractice issues how does that play out in england So that's a growing challenge. I don't think we have the same kind of issues in terms of financial recourses, because in order to practice, every doctor would have to be covered by an indemnity scheme. So like an insurance kind of scheme that would pay out if there was any issues with negligence or maltreatment or that kind of stuff. So criminal prosecutions against doctors for mistreatment and, and that kind of stuff is rare. It does happen. And we actually had a fairly high profile case that's been going on over the past year about a child that unfortunately died. And it was felt that one of the pediatric doctors looking after them had not been appropriate in terms of the way that they had offered that care. And there's lots of backstory to that. So it's not as simple as it sounds. I would say that my personal view is that I don't think the doctor specifically was at fault there. It was also system issues. But you know, criminal prosecution is quite rare in the UK. For financial payouts, probably more common, and there does tend to be some settling, and that may be because of a variety of reasons. But in terms of protocols, they are designed to try and support us and things. So it's generally viewed that if you've done what your peers would have done, then there's no case to answer for. So that case, again, I'm just peripherally familiar with Mm -hmm. it based on what I've read in the news. And any clarification, I think I and everyone else listening probably appreciate. So the short, the very, very short version Mm -hmm. is there was a pediatrician on call and it was alleged that she missed things, which ultimately led to a child dying. But the article that I read said that she was also covering numerous patients running all over the hospital, doing a thousand things at once, doing her best to really attend to many, many children. Mm -hmm. And she also was not a full physician. Like she was still technically in training. Partly true. So that's the terminology. So, um, I mean, people wanted to look at about it. It's called the Bauer Garber case, which is the name of the doctor that was involved. Um, And there's lots of, I guess, media stories around it. I guess from my perspective, the doctor is technically called a junior doctor, but at that stage would have had many years of practice because you basically, the senior level is considered a consultant and you don't really become a consultant unless you've been working for, I think in pediatrics, it's something like eight years or so on a training program minimum, but you can still be quite a senior trained kind of clinician at that point. Wait, as a quick side note, so for someone to be a pediatrician in say the US, four year, so undergrad, minimum Mm -hmm. of three years, medical school for four years, and then three years of training, and then they're done. 
Okay, so in the UK, you would do five years of medical school, um, two years of foundation training, um, and then a specialist, which would be up to, I think, pediatrics is something like eight years before you become a, a pediatrician. They train for eight years? After the foundation. So, yeah, it sounds like... It's uh, a long training. time. It is a long time. General practice is different. So general practice, five years, medical school, typically. There are some schemes at six years. Um, two years of foundation training and then three years of specialty training to become a general practitioner. And then, yeah, you're able to be a GP. So that's what I've done. I've now been trained as a GP for like eight years. But you start medical school straight out of high school. You don't have that undergrad. Yeah, we start medical school. I mean, the earliest you'd normally do be about 17, 18. Okay, because in the U.S., in Canada, people are not starting medical school until they're probably 22-ish, plus or minus. Yeah, so it sounds like potentially the, the age ranges mean it's fairly similar. It sounds like the age ranges are similar. It's just how it's broken up is a little bit different. Yeah, I think particularly that Balagaba case, um, yep. like I said, you're right, there were other issues around the whole problem. So there were issues in terms of, like you said, that she was covering multiple responsibilities for other doctors because they were short-staffed. And that is a free problem at the moment within the NHS. And we have numerous members of staff leaving in part because of Brexit. So in my own practice where I work, we've had a partner that has left the country because of the uncertainty about Brexit. He was um, German-born, um, German-trained, but then been working in the UK for about 13 years, you know, so had been here quite a while, um, but felt that he just couldn't continue because of the growing uncertainty and even some hostility and therefore has left. And we are losing many, many clinicians, you know, doctors, nurses, tra- uh, healthcare professionals because of this thing that's about to happen in a couple of months' time. How does it work as far as the private sector. So say someone doesn't want to wait to see a specialist or they don't, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they have funds, money. Sure. Can they pay for private healthcare? They can. So that'd be the key difference though, that they would have to pay. And that's something some people can do. That's sometimes something people don't want to do and therefore kind of want the same service on the NHS and don't sometimes appreciate that the reason you're getting the difference is because you are paying for it. But yeah, it's something you can do. Typically, if you're going through an insurance aspect, so for example, many companies would potentially offer an insurance-based model as part of their employee benefits, um, then you'd still need a form of a letter from a GP to say that that referral to the private specialist is appropriate. And therefore, that still ends up being workload that in the NHS is seen. And then it's not uncommon sometimes for specialists to then try and transfer patients back into the NHS system so then they don't have to continue paying for it, which is a slight little fix that I think frustrates many people, but it is practice that sometimes happens. Wait, who wouldn't have to keep paying for it? The patient. Oh, I see. So they would see the specialist and then the specialist to facilitate costs would then try to get the patient back into the NHS public. system. Yep. And yep. The, the downside of that would be? So I guess the downside would be sometimes they kind of jump the queue in terms of the care that they've received. And whether that's right or wrong, I guess I'd leave that to each person to make their decision. I guess the other aspect is the workload transfer is probably the one that I personally have a slight issue with um, because a patient may go and see a specialist privately, be told they need scan X, you know, or investigation Y, which isn't typically something that would be offered on the NHS system because it's not within the criteria that we have. And then there's an expectation now that the NHS must deliver that because that's the advice they've had. It can sometimes either cause conflict because it's maybe something we can't do, or it may cause delay because it's something that then they have to go back and wait until they see an NHS specialist to decide whether that's still an appropriate option or treatment or avenue. 
In the U.S., obviously, there's most people will have some sort of health insurance to pay for mm-hmm. their health care. If they don't have health insurance, then it's cash that you have to come yep. up with on your own, which is why some people have financial issues. Also, mm-hmm. even if you have insurance, there are things called co-pays that you'll have to cover a certain amount yeah. of it. And I think that people don't really appreciate the say that insurance companies have over their care because I'm sure this has happened to every practicing physician and PPA in the U.S. is that if they recommend something, and one insurance will pay for it, and then another insurance company will not pay for it. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about Canada is that, at least in Ontario, if the government pays for something, and this is my understanding, again, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but if the government is covering a service, say like a general practice visit, someone cannot just open up a private practice and say, well, even though you have to wait several weeks to see your GP, you can come see me, but you just have to pay cash for it. Like That is not mm-hmm. legal. I don't think specifically you could do that in the UK either. That's partly because in order to have a license to practice in a particular area, you have to go through commissioning groups that decide on where the density of provision is. So if you wanted to go and open a pharmacy, for example, in a particular area um, as part of your practice, if you've got a couple of pharmacies already around you, then they will probably say, well, there's enough already. We're not giving you the license to do so. Or say if you wanted to move practice um, into a new building, you would have to have the authorization of the local clinical commissioning group in order to make that change because they may turn around and say, well, we don't think that's an infrastructure decision that's appropriate and therefore we're not going to let you do that. So therefore you can't do that. Private practice is slightly different, particularly with the advent of um, digital practices and video consultations and that kind of stuff. We are seeing a shift whereby people can access those services irrespective of geographical location, but predominantly that those are all private services still that you would then end up paying for and obviously accessing in that route. How does the English system or compare to the rest of Europe? Is there a lot of variation? So I think the closest system in Europe is actually the Italian system in terms of funding. So the Italian system is another government funded system whereby it's paid directly from taxation and stuff. The majority of the European countries are a form of co-payment. So probably fairly similar to the Canadian system. So whilst it's part funded by the state, it's also part funded by the, the patient themselves, either privately as in the cash or through, like you said, insurance mechanisms and that kind of stuff. And yeah, again, you could argue as to which system is better which one is more cost effective and uh, the outcomes based on that there is quite significant variation across europe as a whole i know many people often comment the scandinavian systems are probably some of the most effective ones in terms of balance of cost outcomes and kind of process kind of thing so what would you say are some of the biggest advantages and disadvantages of the english system So I think easily the biggest advantage of the English system is there is no worry about having to pay for your healthcare pretty much at all. Occasionally, we have some patients who may not be able to pay for their prescription charges if they have to pay for prescription charges. And then there are systems to try and even support those patients. So I mentioned about if you're a working person like myself um, and you have a health issue, you would have to pay a prescription charge, which is just a set rate. I think it's something like £9.80 per prescription item. But then there's a scheme called a prepayment certificate whereby you can pay for four-month period, for example, or a year-long period, and it's the equivalent of 13 prescriptions in a year, and then you have as many as you need. You don't have to pay any additional outside of that charge and stuff. So not having to worry about paying for your health care is easily one of the biggest advantages of the National Health Service. I think in terms of quality of care, we do offer generally good quality of care and dedication of care, I think is also quite amazing. I mean, you hear many doctors and stuff working numerous hours above and beyond 
what they are meant to do in order to maintain the healthcare for the population. And I think that's probably why the NHS is almost like a religion, almost, in England. If you talk to the majority of the public, it is one of the biggest swing voters for the elections and stuff, it is the healthcare system, how that's being managed and how that's being funded and how that's being run. It's a quick win for a lot of politicians in terms of trying to make sure they get decent votes at election time and stuff. And I think the downside is issues in terms of access and potentially even outcomes. We know that England's outcomes, for example, for cancer care are potentially not the best. There are definite improvements that need to be made in that aspect and whether that's down to the gatekeeping role, whether that's down to access to investigations and prioritisation of in some sense of keeping costs down or whether it's also down to just health seeking behaviour of the population and stuff. There's still a lot of work being done to look into that. But also, I guess, you know, the impact it has on the individual person. Sometimes there are clearly times where I would say to a patient, I would love to be able to do something to change how you're feeling. Like, for example, um, you mentioned a patient with knee pain wanting to have a different kind of treatment that doesn't revolve around medications and that kind of stuff. I may not be able to refer them because the criteria says I can't. And actually, that may be the better thing for them or patient needing a knee replacement because their knee is so damaged and stuff. But they probably have to wait several weeks, potentially several months before they can have the procedure done. Whereas actually, if you could do that procedure next week, they recover and they're back to their quality of life, back to their working roles and that kind of stuff a lot quicker. And obviously that has a better outcome in terms of the general kind of population and holistic kind of care and stuff. So the waiting is a challenge. I'll comment on the healthcare system of Canada, mostly because I have a lot of relatives there. and I hear Mm -hmm. the pros and cons of that system. And then naturally, because I practice in the US and use that healthcare system. So Mm -hmm. I think you can either have, there are three variables. There's speed, cost, and quality. And Mm -hmm. you can have at best two of those things, but you can't have three. All three at the same time. Yeah, Yeah. you can't have it fast and really cheap and super high care. It just doesn't work that way. Interesting. There's a really good um, GIF that tries to show you how to do that. And if you try and shift it to one, it stops you from doing the other. But yeah. Uh, What is it? You know, if you search online, there's um, a GIF, you know, the... Oh, uh, sure. Picture. Picture images. Yeah. And yeah, if you try and move it from one to the other, um, it won't let you do all three, basically. No. So in Canada, I think that, again, this is just my impression based on relatives I have in Canada. Mm-hmm. The speed is not really there. If you need to see a specialist, it's slow. If you want to see a GP, it's slow. It's difficult mm-hmm. switching GPs. As far as the care, the care is good once you get it. And the physicians really care. It's just like the UK care is rationed quite a bit. So here's an example. So anecdotally, there's something called a spinal cord stimulator. And what that does is it helps people with severe back pain. So for example, there's a patient of mine, she had debilitating pain for 10 years and Mm -hmm. has not been able to travel. She was on a bunch of medications. She got the spinal cord stimulator and now she's off almost all of her medications and she's traveling abroad for the first time and is very, very happy with it. Now, I don't have a limit on how many I can do per year, but for example, in the state of British Columbia, there's a limit of, I think, 20 to 25 for the entire province, whereas I could easily do that myself. And the outcomes are very good. It's just that's how the province contains costs. So while mm-hmm. it's offered, and I've had conversations with people in Canada, they really have to be very selective with who they offer the therapy to because they just can't offer it to everyone. I would probably say that's fairly similar to what we have here. I don't know if there's particular criteria around the number of procedures that you know specialists could do or, or that kind of stuff. But in terms of using resources, I think there is sometimes a challenge to balance the cost of the resource versus the timely use of the resource. And, and that can vary across different places. So 
Another example, I guess, would be the mental health service. So if I saw a patient that I potentially would benefit from a form of psychological therapy, such as um, CBT, so more commonly used one, the wait time for that is about eight weeks or so. However, if you know they potentially may need something like psychotherapy, more in-depth kind of psychological treatments, currently the waiting time for that is something like 12 to 18 months, which is obviously a long time for someone to be struggling with their mental health. That can therefore lead to attendances in terms of A&E for concerns about suicide, attempts, that kind of thing, or other crises in terms of their mental health. And actually, you could argue then that ends up costing a lot more than having given that patient the potential treatment a lot earlier on. But it's one of those interesting balancing acts they have to deal with. I don't think there are any right answers. It's really what the society as a whole wants, because the society wants all three. They want it fast and cheap and really high quality, but doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. On the flip side in the US, within a week or two, I can refer someone to see, in that example, a behavioral health specialist to help them with cognitive behavioral therapy or Mm -hmm. psychotherapy. And the quality of the care will be very, very high. And if they are not happy with the first, say, psychologist they're seeing, I can find them a second psychologist or a third until they find someone that works with them. Mm -hmm. But the downside is it's expensive. So that's kind of the, the scale, if you will. It is. I mean, I remember reading about some of the OECD data, um, so the data, you know, the Organization of Economic, uh, I forgot what the C&D stands for, and they evaluate the kind of cost per person per head and potential outcomes and that kind of stuff. And I think they looked at um, outcomes of cost versus life expectancy. Um, so if you take somewhere like Turkey, I think the average cost per head was something like $1,000 a year, and the life expectancy was about 60-odd as a result of the average life expectancy. The UK, I think, is something like 9000 per head and average life expectancy about 70, mid-70s, I think it was. Uh, Japan, I think, had the highest life expectancy, and they were just a little bit more expensive than the UK. And then you've got America. Um, in terms of cost, I think it was something like 16,000, sorry, 16,000 per year with average life expectancy of 61, I think it was. So similar to Turkey, whether that's partly because of the way they do the metrics. So I think there is some difference in terms of the way that America kind of marks its life expectancy, because I think it's something to do with the birth ages or time of birth and things. But there is a significant difference in terms of how countries balance the cost versus the outcomes kind of thing. And cost is a funny thing because looking at the average, it loses a lot of the subtleties of the measurement, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I don't know what, and you can comment on it, how this would go in the US, but you can have a very preterm baby born in the US that will require a lot of money and a mm-hmm. lot of resources to care for. Their life expectancy will be low. So like those things are becoming more common. So those are going to really skew the cost up mm-hmm. and then skew the life expectancy down versus um, in other countries, those babies would probably not be born. And even if they were, they may not even be taken into the consensus because they just wouldn't survive. Yeah. And like I said, it, it was this interesting data to look at in terms of the numbers. You're right. Yeah, I think there does also need to be that drill down in terms of what the data actually means, because obviously it depends on how you report it, what your criteria are in terms of reporting it and stuff. But I guess it's I think it is easy to say that American system, you do pay a lot more, whether you get a better healthcare system as a result of that, harder to answer that question as a result. But I guess for me, one of the challenges I would see with the UK system, whilst I'm exceptionally fortunate, at the moment, I don't have to pay to access any form of healthcare whatsoever, apart from very simple things like eye and dental and that kind of stuff. If I was to become unwell, I don't have the worry to about how I'm going to have to pay for this care. But that is balanced with the time. So I can actually give you a personal example. Um, I've had significant problems with one of my ankles, really bad Achilles tendonitis. 
and I've been trying to manage it myself initially. I went to see a physiotherapist and I got two sessions with a physiotherapist provided for me by the healthcare system, which I had to wait three weeks to see the GP, a couple of weeks on to process things and then for me to have the appointment with the physiotherapist. By that point, I'd already paid myself to see the physiotherapist um, directly on a private basis. I got two sessions and then was told that's the limit of what I'm allowed on the NHS system. So I'll have to pay if I want any more. My foot's still not resolved. So I'm now waiting to see a foot specialist to have a look at why my Achilles tendonitis is just not getting any better. And I'm my appointment's not till February. And I was referred about three weeks ago. Here's one of the things that's actually one of the things that I treat. So mm-hmm. Sometimes that, that tendonitis, if you fail conservative treatment, like you've seen a physical therapist and it's just mm-hmm. not getting better, and you've had it for at least three months, and you mm-hmm. can look this up, it's called the Tenex procedure, T-E-N-E-X. And mm-hmm. what that is, is it's this minimally invasive procedure where this little probe goes in and it just breaks up that area of tendinosis and you mm-hmm. can visualize it with an ultrasound. And then it's just a little band-aid that goes on top of it. And the mm-hmm. rate is something like 80, 90%, but very yeah. low risk and people do fantastic afterwards. I think it works much better than steroid injections, which just over time, if you get too many steroid injections, it weakens the tissue. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why I've partly delayed having to go see a specialist because in my head, one of the things I didn't want was a steroid injection because, of, as you said, there's the risk of recurrent injections, the risk of tendon snapping as well, which is obviously a bit of a concern because I don't really want my tendon snap. So intentionally, I've kind of delayed myself going because I guess a little bit of knowledge doesn't always help. But interesting to know that there are possibly other options, which I wasn't aware of. Which is interesting because what that goes into is the area of medical tourism where people will, I know that a friend of mine, he went to, I want to say it was Hungary for, I don't really know why he did it. I think he just wanted to, I I really don't know why, because he's a really healthy guy, Mm -hmm. but he went to Hungary and hung out for a week or two getting physical therapy and getting yoga and spa treatments. And it was very cheap, very, very, very cheap compared to anything else in the US or Canada or the rest of Europe. And I think it still happens even in the UK. So we get many patients that will go, for example, to um, Portugal or to Spain for dental treatment. Because as I said, dental treatment isn't actually predominantly covered on the NHS. It's only very basic checks that you would have done. Um, any form of um, reconstructive or aesthetic treatments you would have to pay for. And you can be talking several thousand pounds potentially. So you know, I've had patients that have gone abroad, gone to Europe, had treatment done, had a holiday at the same time come back, sometimes had to deal with the complications of their treatments as a result of them going abroad. Um, and that's how I tend to find out about them, if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's cheaper and potentially more effective for them to do that. And I think in the UK, we've got many stories of people coming to the UK for health tourism because a lot of these treatments and things are free for access, even if you're from abroad. Um, now, there are restrictions in terms of how long you've been in the country and that kind of stuff to deal with. So uh, primary care is completely free, but secondary care, there are costs if you've not been in the country for six months, I think the time frame is. But outside of that, we do get people coming in from abroad for healthcare provision. And I think that's worth exploring for someone who has either a complicated medical condition that they want a second opinion on, maybe going Mm -hmm. to another area. I would say if someone has an extensive travel history and it's not getting diagnosed, maybe they Mm -hmm. have some sort of funny bug. Seeing a physician with more experience with like just personally treating people with weird bug related things or Mm -hmm. worm related things, going to another country may be a good idea. Yeah. Possibly. I think it's hard to judge the level because I think often we hear by politicians many stories of people coming from abroad to receive treatment. And there's unfortunately sometimes the rhetoric about they're they're taking away the resources from you and and that kind of stuff and aims to try and clamp down on, on the kind of health, inappropriate health tourism and that kind of stuff. I think it's very minor 
part of the overall NHS budget. And I think actually in the UK system, my personal views would probably cost them more to track down these people than it would to, for the actual amount of money that they end up losing as a result of it. But yeah, I think it's a reality no matter which country you're going to be in, because obviously, particularly Western countries generally have the view, you know, the reputation that healthcare may be more effective and therefore you get tourism as a result of that reputation. I can say that in some of the places I've worked, they've definitely people coming in from overseas, true or not, because of the perceived, the quality of the care that they were getting. Sure. Um, I agree that it definitely happens. I guess that my question is more about the actual scale. and It would be small because they would have to pay for that out of pocket yeah. and it would be expensive. Yeah. I don't think that would be an, a realistic option for many people to say, well, I'm going to go to the US and I want to pay for a knee replacement out of pocket because it would be many thousands of dollars. Sure. Any closing thoughts on the UK system that you wish, because this is primarily a US Canadian mm -hmm. podcast that people you want to know about? Yeah, I think one just an interesting observation I've seen over the past, I guess, couple of years, because obviously with the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare and all that kind of stuff, it sounds like, um, particularly in America, people have been concerned about having a UK-like system. And I don't actually think the Affordable Care Act does bring across the NHS system. I think it's, from my understanding anyway, and I'm happy to be told I'm wrong on this, it, it sounds more like the Canadian kind of system. System in a sense. But we have increasingly many people looking at how the UK system currently works and in some ways doesn't work as well because it is significantly underfunded in terms of the outcomes it tries to achieve, I think. And we're losing doctors, nurses, that kind of stuff because of the workload pressures that they're being subjected to and upon. And we talked about some of the reasons like litigation, like making sure you're not making a mistake, like just general bodies on bums on seats, really. It's weird how people sometimes look that the grass is always greener on the other side and don't always appreciate what they may have. And I find that an interesting perspective sometimes. I would agree with you. I think that all systems have pros and cons, but mm -hmm. I think really understanding you can't have all three. You can't have it fast and super high quality and then have it cheap. Mm -hmm. And people tend to get really grumpy when their taxes are going to be raised, pay for healthcare, but when they need healthcare, then they are annoyed that they have to pay for it. But if the money has to come from somewhere, either the general population or out of their individual pockets. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the interesting things I often come into a lot of my patients. And so whilst there is definitely things that we would deal with with their healthcare and stuff, sometimes the patients come see me for things that aren't related either to healthcare or for other kind of things and a classic one for example is they want a letter for x y and z so they may want a letter to say so they're fit to do a parachute jump as an example and in actual fact that's not an nhs service so they're surprised when they suddenly are told that they would have to pay a charge for that and that sometimes causes conflict and potentially even complaints because it's not a service that's provided and because perception is that everything is free suddenly to be told that you will have to pay for certain things like i said that causes conflict sometimes and i think unfortunately that, that's something that we're going to see increasingly in the uk system because they are pulling towards more of a private-based system particularly some legislative changes we've had in the past few years and also with the actual understanding that the current system isn't working because we still need more money we need more people and that's got to come from somewhere like you said because you can only really have two or three and if there's no more money either the quality is going to go down or the timeliness is going to go down and that doesn't seem acceptable to the general populace no and i think it's just an unfortunate thing that there isn't more education available for what goes into healthcare, the costs of healthcare, and really if you want high quality care you're going to have to pay for it someone mm -hmm. is going to have to pay for it either someone is going to have to pay for it yeah that's the key thing. 
And if you pay for it in taxes, you're indirectly paying for it. But if you pay for it out of pocket, you're still paying for it because the only, I think a lot of people, there's this misunderstanding that the government has a lot of money. The only way the government gets money is by taxes. Yeah. Really? Like that's their source of income. And everyone wants to cut taxes, but I'm not saying that we should be taxed to some crazy extent, but if you want services, you need to be taxed. That's the reality. Agreed. I guess one question I'd have for yourself and your experience then would be one of the common reasons why people outcry against a change from the NHS system to a private system is um, people say, if I've seen someone and they paid for a service and then I don't give them what they want, that makes them very unhappy or they may complain. Say, for example, I have a patient come in to see me for a cold and they've paid for that appointment and they don't get an antibiotic, for example, that they then go off and complain about that. Would you say that's something you experience? Because I think that's the perception that many people have that if the NHS shifted its model of care, that that's something that we're going to have an increasing problem with. Well, I think people are going to complain no matter what you do. If you go to the reviews for a five-star restaurant, like some fancy Michelin star-rated restaurant, someone somewhere is going to complain about the service. Yeah, I think the issue is not whether or not you're going to get complaints because you're going to get complaints. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, the physicians have to do what they think is appropriate. And if, say, a patient complains about it, well, they're free to go somewhere else. Like, say someone comes in, like they clearly have just a flu and they're saying, mm-hmm. I need all these antibiotics. And you tell them you have the flu, you don't need the antibiotics, and they complain. Well, you can always say you can go get a second opinion from another doctor, but I have to do what is ethically and medically correct for you. And if mm-hmm. you disagree, you're more than welcome to go to somewhere else. But I think if these complaints are lodged with whoever they're lodged with, it should be taken in that light of, is this a valid complaint? Is this physician doing something grossly wrong below the standard of care? Or is it just someone complaining to complain? And what I would suggest is there should probably be a review board of physicians and someone in that, whoever is being complained about, have a physician in that specialty and say, no, this is like people complain all the time that they don't aren't getting their antibiotics when it's, it's not indicated. That's bad for the population as a whole. Mm-hmm. So we will take that complaint and put it in the drawer and close the drawer. Does that happen in America? People get complaints all the time in America. No, all I, the time I meant, for all sorts sorry. of things. <clears throat> so I meant more specifically the review board aspect, I think, because interestingly, the majority of complaint review boards in the UK are lay people, um, so they aren't clinician-led. The review boards in the US are clinician-read, so a lot of the frivolous complaints, like my doctor did not smile enough. My doctor, mm-hmm. I didn't like their shoes. Just silly things. Mm-hmm. They don't go anywhere because you have physicians sorting through things that are not appropriate. If a clinician is clearly doing something wrong, there are other doctors on that board to say, well, this is not an acceptable action that this doctor took. In the UK, majority of the places that patients have the option of complaining to, and there is a lot of places, so there are many different organisations that a person can complain to, majority of them are monitored and kind of observed by lay people rather than clinicians. And it doesn't really go to the clinicians unless it's, I think, two or three particular groups. And once they've got through the first and second stages, they're not kind of churned out. And I think that possibly is where some of the anxiety about this kind of potential shift may be coming from because of the current experience that many people have that um, if a complaint goes outside of, for example, my practice, so normally the first place a patient would complain if they have a bad services to my practice manager. Um, If they're not satisfied with that, they have the option of going to the GMC, General Medical Council. They have the option of going to the local um, CCG, local arm of the NHS England. They have the option of going to the Ombudsman Service and obviously going legally as well in addition to that. And they could do all five at the same time if they wanted to. 
and we would have to do a separate reply to each individual organization of which only one of those would be clinician led. I think that my suggestion would be that the reform should go to the complaint service. And I think anyone in any field would mm-hmm. feel uneasy about someone who isn't in their field critiquing them. For example, if I had a plumber come over and I don't like the way they fixed my sink, mm-hmm. if I complain to the plumbing board, I could just say, you know what? The plumber had dirty shoes and he walked on my carpet. Well, the plumbing board could say, well, your basement was flooded. And the reason he had dirty shoes was because he walked through your dirty basement. Mm-hmm. So this is a silly complaint and I'm going to put it in a drawer and close the drawer. In that same breath, it seems unreasonable to have someone who's not familiar with an actually practiced medicine in that mm-hmm. specific field commenting on the care. Yeah, I think that's probably where a lot of the anxiety comes from, from clinicians in terms of, yeah, the challenge that we potentially have because a lot of the complaint services in the UK don't have that level of clinician-led perspective, shall we say. That could make for a very difficult way to practice because you're recommending things that you think, and you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. are in the best interest of whoever it is you're treating, but Mm -hmm. they saw something on the internet or they think that, I'm going to make up an example. So if someone has a cancer of some sort and they say, well, I need you to give me a prescription for prune juice because the prune juice is going to cure my cancer. And you say, no, you should probably see an oncologist and get chemotherapy. And then they complain about you. It seems odd that you wouldn't have someone else in that specialty commenting. As I said, it doesn't tend to happen at the earliest. It happens at the later stages. And I think that therefore creates quite a lot of anxiety sometimes for people because you start down that process and often just going down that process of complaints is frustrating at the very least, particularly if you know it's a vexatious complaint. I mean, I think complaints definitely have their place because sometimes they do highlight inappropriate care or inappropriate systems more often than not which do need changing. So so one of my roles in the practice is actually to look at the system changes myself. And often there's a person that goes around trying to find the holes and fixing them and that kind of thing. I think complaints definitely have their usefulness and power and importance. It's the vexatious ones that I guess irk myself and a lot of my colleagues in terms of how that would work. In the US right now, I will say in the US right now, there's this problem of narcotic prescribing and the US prescribes a lot of narcotics, some mm-hmm. justified, some not justified. Yeah. And there's a very gray area in between of justified, not justified. Sure. And no one wants to withdraw care of, say, someone who's dying of cancer pain or someone mm-hmm. a terminal end of life. But you also don't want to inappropriately prescribe narcotics as well. So it's sure. not easy to do, but that is a source of patient complaints where someone thinks that they need like very strong narcotics, but really they've stubbed their toe and it's not indicated. Sure. Um, So I think that's a growing issue in the UK. In some ways, we're kind of following America down that path. And I think um, seeing the opiate crisis in America, we're starting to realise how much of a challenge that actually is and how many problems that's going to cause. Um, So there is quite a big shift to try and move people away from using opiates and stuff in terms of non-cancer care and particularly for non-cancer pain and on the chronic basis because the reality is opiates for chronic pain is not really a good option generally speaking because of the issues with tolerance and dependency and stuff that naturally come in play because of the pharmacology of the drugs themselves and but you're right it does cause challenges so in my practice we've just done a review of the patients that we have on fairly strong opiates we're talking fentanyl patches greater than 25 micrograms we're talking patients taking more than 150 milligrams of morphine a day kind of thing and bringing those patients in and discussing with them that you know the pros the cons you know how they've got to this stage do they really still need these kind of pain relief options it sometimes can be a real challenge and when you've only got 10 minutes to deal with a patient in addition to all the other health issues that they want to deal with you can understand why people have ended up having 
certain drugs because that's a challenge. But trying to fix it is potentially a challenge. Even so here's also. a thought that circles back to the patient complaint issue is that mm-hmm. now say someone is tolerant to say their narcotic medication, meaning their body's mm-hmm. just gotten used to it. And you can have a very rational conversation of, well, it's probably not helping you anymore. Let's work on coming down a mm-hmm. little bit on the dose. And if it's just tolerance, a reasonable person would say, I can see where you're coming from. Let's work on slowly reducing my dose over time and we'll see how we tolerate mm-hmm. it and go from there. But if you have someone that is addicted to medication, and I'm using these terms very specifically. So if someone is addicted, it means they're using medications while it's causing life harm and, and all these negative things that go along with it. If someone is addicted to narcotics and you tell them, well, how about we work on coming down because of all these negative consequences of long-term narcotic use? They will probably get very angry and Mm -hmm. may file a complaint against you for discussing taking away the medications that they feel like they need Mm -hmm. while the evidence for long-term narcotics is small, very small. Let's just pretend that that happened. How would that go in the British system? So I can give you some examples of that because I've had patients recently where we've had that exact challenge. Some of it has gone well in the sense of I've helped the patients understand that actually the medication is not something that's in their best interest in highlighting you know the the negatives of what that medication is doing and the other life impacts so chronic opiate use can have significant issues in terms of sleep in terms of sexual use and that kind of stuff impotence and that kind of thing as well and when you try and rationalize to people that actually pain may not be fixed at all because we don't have the capabilities of, of doing that you've seen specialists you've had this done you've had that and your pain's not improved but you are getting the side effects of these particular drugs that we are giving you. So would it not be more sensible to look at ways to try and manage your pain response, um, to manage the flares when you have your flares of pain, but then taking away the medication that's causing you these other side effects and these other problems in your life that you're currently having. So then at least you don't have those problems because your pain won't change. It hasn't changed. And that's worked well because for me, generally speaking, for the ones that you were talking about, I guess the addicted ones that don't want that to happen, sometimes it is a case of just taking the firmer approach and accepting the fact that they're going to complain. Even though the stuff we talked about earlier, I have to admit, I generally don't fear the complaint itself because I know from my perspective, if I'm giving them the best advice I can give them, um, then I shouldn't have anything to fear in terms of a complaint itself. It's more the workload that comes with the complaint that challenges me more than anything else. So in that respect, personally, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but I can see why many of my colleagues who do fear complaints because of the worry of how that then ends up happening can therefore slip into the perspective of collusion of anonymity. So continuing the treatment with the view that somebody else may change things because traditionally speaking, the adam of seeing my GP is actually shifting away in current primary care and healthcare in the UK. It may not be that you see the same person again. Maybe you see a different doctor in the same practice and therefore that care changes quite often and therefore people don't have that worry in that sense. So wait, so they're shifting the care so you don't really have a specific GP. You're just going to be rotated between GPs? So Different practices have different systems. So some practices will offer what's called a named list. So you will be allocated to a list of a GP and then you will be prioritized to always see that GP if they're in. And if they're not, then they'll either have a backup person that you see or you just see one of the other doctors kind of thing. 
majority of practices though nowadays because of the shift in terms of the way that people work so partly because we are short of gps um, and partly because of the skill mix increase that we're developing in, in england you you know the practice may not offer a named gp service whereby you ask for an appointment you're offered an appointment that's either the first convenient one which could be gpa and if you want to see a specific gp you may have to wait two three weeks potentially before you can see them and then obviously patients make their choice which is more important to them is it the continuity and seeing that particular person or is it the convenience seeing the person somebody now or when suitable to them so therefore people may end up seeing different people different times yeah it definitely sounds like a lot of change a lot of change and uncertainty in the yeah, english system. very much so um, and I think that's one of the interesting things about the current England UK health system that we are seeing a massive shift in the way that work is trying to be done because it's trying to still offer the best possible care for the least amount of money in the most effective service, like many people are trying to do. But I think that it's possibly failing because people don't appreciate, like you said, it's that three-way thing. You can never have all three. And that's going to be interesting to see how that manifests, particularly post-Brexit but also moving forward with the, the increase in expectations that things like video consultations are bringing, like the increase in outcomes that people are seeing with less clinicians around and stuff as well. Yeah, it, it's def- definitely going to be a lot of, of eye-opening things. I think it's difficult to play in that middle ground of having, on a scale of zero to 10, having like a five of speed, a five of quality, and a five mm-hmm. of cost. It seems either you're going to be very expensive, but really, really high quality care, but you only use it when you need it or mm-hmm. really quick office visits. If you just really need a well visit check, you know, whatever quick things you need, but that middle ground seems to be the, the most difficult place to live. And I think that's why in the U S there's the whole move towards direct primary care where their physicians. And I, I have a podcast that's coming out about it where some physicians are just opting out of the insurance program and having people pay them directly for, to be their GP Mm-hmm. So the costs actually have come down quite a bit for that, but mm-hmm. they have access to those physicians when they mm-hmm. want them. And the physicians will really sit for one physician was saying like she would sit for like a half hour to an hour, just chatting with someone really getting to know them. Mm-hmm. But then again, you have quality and speed. You can get in whenever you want to, but they're paying for that out of pocket. Sure. Um, and I think potentially we will see that model of care come into play in England. Um, there are a couple of places that are now starting to offer that service. So there are a couple of organizations that offer that either on a home visiting service or through predominantly um, telemedicine routes and stuff. But we are seeing an increase in that happen in England because people are voting with their feet. If they're having to wait um, for care, the, the, some are, who have the ability are starting to pay for it now because they realize that the NHS isn't able to offer the same service it potentially used to be because of these other pressures and changes and challenges it's currently facing. And that I'll circle back to what you're saying of if someone is say demanding something that's not medically reasonable and like, let's say I came to you and I said, I want you to chop off my nose and I'm paying you to chop off my nose. Um, you'd probably say, no, that's not a good idea. Maybe you need to see a psychologist about that mm-hmm. issue. Then I would say you can fully just say, well, you've paid for the visit. You're just paying for the visit. You're not paying me to do unnecessary things. Mm-hmm. But then I am free to find someone else that I'm sure would do that cosmetic procedure because I'm paying them. But that would then mm-hmm. be on them about the outcome. That's a good way of looking at it, actually. Um, so, might be would, one I explain to my colleagues then. Well, we'll see. 
We'll see. It's a good example, actually. Um, I think all systems can definitely be tweaked, but I, I think in my thought would be the general public should just be better educated about how payment works and how government works. I think also to a degree, self-care. I mean, one of the key messages I try and push within my practice is that actually that there is a variety of things you don't need to come and see a doctor about. There are many conditions that you can try and manage yourself or it would be sensible to have done before you come and see a GP. And it can be something simple like if you're in pain, take some painkillers potentially, so some simple over-the-counter painkillers before coming to see me about it because actually if it's helped and it's improved things, at the very least then you've not suffered in pain before coming to see me and i guess the reason why i'd give that as an example i often deal with patients who for example may have injured themselves on a friday after we've shut we don't open again till monday and they've not taken anything because they didn't want to go and pay over the counter to get some medication and they wanted to wait till they came and saw us to get a prescription for that medication which they wouldn't have to pay for well that's their choice if they want to be in pain over the weekend and not pay sure i don't know how much ibuprofen or tylenol costs in england but in the u.s it's Less than a pound. Um, it's very so than, cheap. Yeah, so less than a dollar. But I guess the reason why I raised that is, in my view, potentially they didn't even need that discussion with me in the first place um, because the outcome would have potentially been they just need to refer themselves to self self refer themselves to physio or just need to watch and wait or to try some pain relief um, to see if it has just helped to ease it down a little bit and therefore that initial consultation which so the time it's taken for them to discuss things with me may not have needed a consultation at all and therefore that's cost to the system that's been used but more importantly that's time to the system that's been used so as i mentioned we've got a workload balance issue in primary care in particular and there's only a certain amount of people that you can see and if everyone's coming in for things that could have potentially been managed by themselves then that still needs dealing with triaging, managing, and that kind of stuff. And that brings in cost and... So if someone, if someone wanted to open, let's say tomorrow, you wanted to open up a fee-for-service practice, mm-hmm. someone would come in and pay you whatever you decided to charge. And assuming you could get patients to do that, like, could you just open your own practice? I could. I would have to go through quite a lot of regulatory systems in order to get that approved. So if it was purely private, then it's possible. There's nothing specifically stopping me apart from, like I said, those like regulatory bodies making sure I'm approved to so say CQC, Care Quality Commission approved, that kind of stuff. The challenge is that you would need a reasonable density of a population that would want to use that service. So for example, if I was to try and do that in Nottingham, where I live, which is like um, so it's one of the 10th largest cities in England. For primary care private service, I would say there probably isn't a big enough market to offer that to make it a financially viable option because there just isn't enough density. You know, places like London, Birmingham, Manchester, you know, the bigger, the kind of like the larger cities in the England. Yeah, definitely it could work. And there are definitely parts of particularly London where that does happen. But because we have the NHS, people will predominantly use the NHS first because it comes at no cost. Sure, that makes sense. Dr. Gandhi, thank you for joining us. Any closing thoughts or if anyone wants to contact you or ask you questions, any social media presence yeah, that you have? Actually, a bit of a tech geek, actually. Um, so contact me on social media is not a problem. Um, my Twitter handle is at drgandalf52. Yeah, as in the Time Lord and Gandalf <laughs> And I run a health technology kind of platform called EGP Learning. 
and um, which you know, particularly clinicians if they wanted to look at how to use technology to help them in primary care and that kind of stuff more than welcome to have a look at that because that's kind of my hobby horse kind of thing also on um, other platforms like instagram and facebook and stuff but twitter is probably the best place to get a hold of me um we'll include all of the that contact information in the show notes so dr mm-hmm. Gandhi, thank you so much for joining us thank you very much hope you have a nice day you Bye. too thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please leave a comment on the get healthy 360 facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast thanks